Today, we look ahead to one of the most major milestones of our lives when we graduate into retirement. Now, here's our valedictorian and certified financial planner practitioner, Eric Brotman, your host of Don't Retire, Graduate, the podcast that teaches you how to advance into retirement rather than retreating. Get ready for inspiration and actionable advice to guide you towards a seamless transition into a dignified retirement where you get to make your dreams a reality. Welcome to Don't Retire, Graduate. I'm Eric Brotman, your host, and this is episode nine of our first season, and we're almost midway through the year, finishing our first semester of graduating into retirement. And my guest today is business partner and friend Yanni Niebuhr, from BFG Financial Advisors here in the Baltimore area. Yanni, welcome to the show. Eric, thanks for having me. This is going to be a, a whole lot of fun because, number one, Yanni, you, you have not been prepped for this whatsoever. So we're just going to have a conversation. But the premise of today's show um, is to talk a little bit about how uh, retirement planning is not a, a sprint. It's a marathon something we don't want to start right as we're getting to that moment where we're thinking, uh-oh, I want, to, I want to hang up the cleats and call it a career somewhere around 60 years old. This is uh, something that should start much earlier. And uh, you're a card-carrying millennial. I am. And what that means is that you speak millennial. So uh, hopefully our audience is going to be multi-generational <laughs> and, and, and now our, our, our conversation can be. So first, let's, let's talk about you a little bit and uh, talk about how you got into this business and, and what you love to do. Sure. Well, I am 30 years old. I am married, have a little guy, one and a half year old. Started in this business about seven years ago, right out of college. So it's pretty unique in the fact that most people my age have trouble getting into this industry. In fact, there are more people over the age of 70 than under 30 in this industry. And so I started more of a mentorship and spent five years learning the business and going through investment operations, internship, associate advisor, now a full-fledged lead advisor. Fantastic. And uh, and where'd you go to school? Went to Towson University, one so, of the best. So you're, so you're, uh, you're local to this area. I am. Uh, has that helped you, frankly, in this uh, business? I, I think so. Uh, people resonate with the fact that I'm a, a local person from the Baltimore area, went to school here, public education, then Towson University. Very good. So uh, as a millennial, um, and, and just for everyone listening, I'm a Gen Xer, and we're the forgotten generation because the millennials and the boomers are both giant populations. We are the baby bust, uh, certainly. And so we have no pull politically or financially or otherwise. But um, when it comes to, to retirement planning, the, the beautiful thing is that we are smack dab in the middle of that sandwich generation where we've mm -hmm. got parents getting older we have to, to worry about and we've got kids to educate and hopefully you've started a college fund for your little guy. Oh, we have. Um, so let's talk about the, the multi-generational and specifically the, what millennials can do to start thinking about retirement, which almost sounds ridiculous when you're also talking about your first job, your first apartment, your first home, et cetera. But what do you tell folks your age and, and even maybe a little younger than you at this point uh, about getting started? Sure, well, millennials are in a tough spot because um, first off, they have a lot of debt student-wise. There's, the average I think is right around $30,000. And when you include all the other lifestyle debt, it's right around 40. So they're starting off with a little bit of a chip on their shoulder of how they get started into retirement. But from there, it's looking at it from the standpoint of when you get your first job, making sure you're at least putting in what you can match with your company. That's free money that's left on the sidelines. A lot of times where millennials are not putting in as much as what they could with their, their company. Uh, understood. So if uh, a company's willing to make a match, uh, that is free money. It makes perfect sense. But 
how do you choose what to put money towards? Do you put it toward your student loan? Do you put it towards savings? Do you put it toward retirement? How do you how do you make those decisions when you're first getting started? Well, that's what an advisor's for and helping you figure out exactly where you need to put it because everybody's different, everyone's unique. Um, some people it's maybe a traditional 401k, some people it's a Roth 401k, some people it's saying, well, you know what, my student loan debt for whatever reason is only at 3%, other people it's at 9 and everybody's different, but figuring out those different places is tough. Some people have a lot of credit card debt that's at 12 or 15% or maybe even 20. Yanni, we've done shows earlier in the season about legacy planning and about communication between generations. And um, how do you as a millennial and the, the folks you represent as young people feel about discussions around money with their parents or even grandparents? Um, it's everybody's different. Some people, they're an open book. People grow up with the ideals of their parents. So my views on money is different than my wife's. And so some people have a closed, narrow-minded situation behind it. Other people are open about it. But having those conversations with your parents and saying, you know, now that I have a, a little guy, I was talking with my parents, well, hey, do you guys start at 529 for them or should we or those type of things? And both of my parents said, you know what, no, we're starting something for him, so here's how we're planning that, and I was lucky enough to do that. But my wife's side is not as fortunate, so we know we had to plan it a little differently. Got it. Um, and, you know, I, I look at the situation with my own folks. Mm -hmm. um, you know, my, my father is turning 80 in two months, which is remarkable to me, because I'm too young to have a dad 80. Mm -hmm. At least I think I, think I am. Um, but. You know, I remember when 80 to me sounded like uh, it might as well have been 200, right. and now it's just dad, you know. Um, but we get to these into these conversations about, um, about what's important, and so little of it has to do with money. A lot of it has to do with freedom and independence and, and visions and values. So can you talk a little bit about the, 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 I guess, the millennial mindset, first of all, about what independence means because I get the sense that your generation's the first one that feels differently about work than every other generation before you. Right, and it, it's been said a lot in the news lately, actually, it's the, the side hustle. Um, the millennial generation wants to be independent as soon as possible. Um, and, and with that, it's finding other ways to make money outside of the typical nine to five job. A lot of us are still trying to figure out exactly what that is, but we want different things than the other generations. It, it's not so much the material objects now, it's more about the experiences and being able to do um, online marketing and those type of things. Vlogs are now a, a thing where 20 years ago, who would have thought of a vlog? I, I still don't know what a vlog is. I, I mean, I okay. think I do, but you're a different generation. I so am that. a different generation, so I'm I'm feeling old, and I appreciate your help with that. I didn't need your help with that. Um, all right, so let's talk about entrepreneurship mm -hmm. a little bit, because um, when you talk about freedom and you talk about independence, and specifically financial independence, um, one of those components is the freedom to do what what you're passionate about and to do what you want to do. Now, you're you're an entrepreneur. You're a young entrepreneur who didn't have to necessarily bootstrap and start a company from scratch, but um, you certainly have, have uh, bought in both literally and figuratively into the concept of, of business ownership. So let's talk about ownership. Sure. Um, with that, a lot of people now, especially in the millennial generation, are looking to become their own independent owner of whatever they're doing. Um, for me, it was an expensive proposition and a little bit of a scary one, but exciting at the standpoint, same standpoint. But for a lot of people, it's, it's starting their own company, particularly online. Um, what you're seeing a lot more now is um, the uh, Instagram generation of trying to create their own brand, but it's a social awareness. Social awareness. So does that mean when you say social awareness, I'm, I'm picturing various 
various causes or various um, uh, or, or various callings. Is that what you mean? Or yes, is this that's exactly what I mean. So our generation, um, by their very definition, is is far more socially conscious than a lot of those that came before us. Okay, I'm excluding well, you from that. I appreciate that. Let's let's pick on the generations before us now, because our, our listeners are are of uh, of all different ages. And, um, you know, we started with the greatest generation, right? The greatest mm -hmm. generation had a, um, a very different experience planning to be financially independent at retirement. Um, first of all, um, most of them had pensions. And today, you and I will never have a pension, presumably. No. Um, they had pensions. Uh, they had Social Security, which was material. And it was material because um, they were claiming it at or about 65 and uh, most of them, a lot of, of that generation, didn't live a whole lot past 72. So it was this, this, uh, this period where you really only had to save about 10% of, uh, of what you would need to retire comfortably. Today, we've replaced that three-legged stool with what I've heard affectionately called the yo-yo, which is you're on your own. <laughs> and that's because you don't have a pension, I don't have a pension, um, the odds of Social Security being here with, without politicizing anything, um, the odds of Social Security being here in the way we currently know it, I think are slim. It they're has slim, to change. They're slim for me. They're, they're slimmer for you. So, ha, I went on that one. Um, so, so that was the greatest generation. Now, it's not enough to save 10% of your wherewithal. What, what kind of targets do you try and set for income replacement? Is there a rule of thumb? What are you trying to do with folks? Um, again, everyone is different, but the problem is, is as you said, is pensions are gone, companies are contributing less to a person's retirement account, and at the same time, they're starting out their careers with a mountain of debt. Um, housing is more expensive than ever. It's become a, a two-income society. So trying to save between 10 and 20% to start is just a rule of thumb. But from there, it's looking to replace your lifestyle as best you can. And the rule of thumb of, well, you can live on 80% of your you know, lifestyle pre-retirement is not entirely true when you include health care costs. So um, you said something interesting, which is we're a two-income uh, two household situation. I would argue we're more than that. Because it was interesting, I, I think the, the boomers were, in many cases, a one-income household. Mm -hmm. You know, it was very uh, leave it to be there and father, does, father knows best and, and very, uh, we can't even fathom what that world was like necessarily, but it was a one-income in a lot of cases. And then you get to the extras and it became a two-working household mm -hmm. situation. Well, today, you brought up the side hustle. I'd argue in some cases, it's two plus, it's two and a half, it's That's three. Um, and so you have two working adults, but you might have more than two quote unquote jobs just to just to make ends meet now. Yeah. Um, how tenable is that? How, how what, what's a, the what's the breaking point there? It is a very scary proposition, and the things that people thought were going to save the money are wind up costing them more. I mean, people were talking so long about cord cutting and the fact that that was going to save everybody a ton of money, but they just did a study where the average American spends over two hundred dollars a month on the various things, including Wi-Fi, cell phones, and your subscription services. The world is getting more expensive, not less. It's also getting more complicated. You have to show me how to use some of those things. <laughs> so, so there's that. Um, Okay, so we talked about the greatest generation. We talked about the pension piece. Baby boomers are, uh, baby boomers were the first generation that was really huge that was going to change the world. You know, you, you had all the, the Dennis Hopper commercials 10 years ago of, mm -hmm. of, of guys with gray hair on motorcycles recreating themselves and so forth. Um, but boomers have done something which no generation before 
um, has experienced, which is they're not retiring in the traditional sense. In fact, in lots of cases, they're not retiring at all. Um, in your experience, have you seen that more around inability to or disinterest in? It's a little bit of both. And the, for the most part, it's well, what are they going to do in retirement? It's, you know, finding what their passion is. A lot of them, they're working, but it's more for themselves at this point, whether it's volunteerism, consulting, uh, helping out with a charity, going on a board, but something that keeps them busy because you can only watch Days of Our Lives so many times when you're tired. Uh, zero times yeah. would, be, would be ideal. So, so the boomers aren't, aren't retiring. They're not leaving the workforce, which means in the grand scheme of things, fewer jobs, um, ideal jobs at least, are available to generations up and coming because mm -hmm. they're, in a lot of cases, we've had some various types of careers replaced by technology. We've had, and systems and so forth. And, right. and efficient. I mean, I think corporate productivity has never been higher. And right now we have low unemployment, but I think we have a lot of underemployment. I think we have a lot of people working for less than certainly their education may have uh, dictated or they would have considered. Do you see? Do you see some of that? You see uh, underemployment. Absolutely. Yeah, there's absolute unemployment. The fact that a bachelor degree doesn't mean what it did 20, 30 years ago, um, and the problem with that is it's only going to compound itself as we continue going. When people now master's degrees or with bachelor's degree, and then eventually it's going to have to be doctorates. And on top of that, it's as we continue to advance with technology and people continue to work longer and longer. Because as you said, you know, when Social Security started, it wasn't intended for 67, and as that continues to compound, well, there's going to be fewer and fewer jobs for the millennial generation. Enter the side hustle, the entrepreneur, exactly. the, the small business owner. And and I think the tax bill that passed in, in uh, January 1 of 2018, which there's plenty of fleas on that dog, but one of the things that it did do that was, I think, positive was incent people to start their own small businesses. Yes. And so I think we're seeing a lot more self-employment than we ever have, which as far as I'm concerned, it's a good thing. It's not bad to be a free agent when, right. you, can, when you can go out and, and, and find something you love to do and make a living doing it, mm -hmm. so long as it's uh, legal and sustainable and all of those things. So um, that, that to me feels like a, um, a conversation in and of itself. This whole idea of the bachelor's degree, which you just said, is less valuable than ever. It's also more expensive than ever. Right. At what point does it not make sense to spend $200,000 or more to get a degree that is not not only not a guarantee of a job, it's sure as heck not a guarantee of a good job. I, I think that point is here, honestly. When you have every day you can turn on the news and see um, one news company or another talking about the fact that that bubble is about to burst where everyone is coming out with large amounts of student loan debt. It's affecting their first job. It's affecting when they start a family. It's affecting if or when they buy a house. And if it's creating those things, but it's not generating income and having an ROI on it, well, then why do it? So when you say ROI, you're talking about return on investment of, right. of tuition payments. And so what you're saying is it may not make sense to, to write those huge checks for an undergraduate education anymore. Right. I, I think you will see less and less of the private institutions, more of the public that are less expensive. Because how can you justify $70,000 a year on something and come out making forty? You'll never pay that back. Uh, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I've seen in, in my personal career, I've seen folks, uh, married couples, who went through undergrad and graduate school and had as much as half a million dollars yeah. in student loans. I mean, you're talking uh, med school and law school and everything else, but that's like having a heck of a nice house with no place to live. 
Right. On a personal side, I have someone that I know very near and dear that has $200,000 of student loan debt is making forty grand a year and is on the minimum payments. The interest is growing at larger than what they're making the payments on. It will never go away. That's amazing. That's amazing. And, and now student loans are one of the issues that right now, um, one of the types of things that you can't get out of via bankruptcy. Right. Um, and I'm not advocating for changing that necessarily because I actually think if the, if the legislature ever decided to allow bankruptcies on student loans, we would have mass bankruptcy. An entire generation would say, I'm out, and for seven years would destroy their credit. And the ripple effect there, I think, would be more devastating than the, the real estate bubble 10 years mm-hmm. ago. Um, so I don't think that's the answer. But I, I, I did hear that there, is a, there, there are some programs being worked on by some big companies to try to create uh, an incentive for student loan repayment where student loans potentially could be repaid by payroll deduction uh, and matched by companies and even done in a pre-tax way potentially and that there's legislation uh, discussing ways to try and help these young people get out of that hole because quite frankly, if you're 23 and you've got a big student loan, a 401k match doesn't do nearly for you what a student loan payment match would. That's extremely powerful. And again, with our generation, um, it's less about the income and more about the benefits, the flexibility that you have behind it. So having a company that's saying, we support you and the things that you've done uh, through your education, we're going to continue supporting you. Our generation loves that. Okay. So for all you employers out there, um, student loan matching is more valuable to millennials than retirement matching. Fair? Fair. Okay. You heard it from Yanni Niebuhr. <laughs> who, who is speaking for the entire millennial generation. I actually agree with you. I think, I think that does make sense. <laughs> Look, as a millennial who has quite a bit of student loan debt, I completely agree with that. So hint, hint for us. Hint, hint. Oh, good. We'll, we'll, we'll start to look at that very, very seriously someday soon. Um, as soon as it's tax deductible, Yanni, we'll, we'll, we'll get right on that. Okay, so we've, we've spent some time talking about, um, on this show, we've spent a lot of time talking about asking people at various ages of their lives what they want to be when they grow up. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to put you on the spot. Sure. And I'm going to ask you, as, a, as a, a, an adult, what do you want to be when you grow up? What's the plan? What's your, what's your not end game, because you know, we've talked about this never having an end game, but sure. what are the iterations you're hoping to, to move towards? Well, as I mentioned, the, the, the first thing, one of the most important things to me is being a fantastic father. I think that is the number one priority to me uh, from a personal level. But from a uh, professional level, it's continuing to just be a, an amazing financial advisor, growing with this firm, and having that point where it comes a time where I have either a, a grandparent or a parent say to me, you know what, my kid got through school and we were able to pay for it and they were able to come out without any debt and start a leg up compared to 90 plus percent of their peers, and it was because of you and your guidance. Do you run into or see situations with clients, I'm, I'm gonna shift gears a little bit now, where some of the kids aren't upwardly mobile? Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's a bell curve of humanity, right? Sure. There's, there's the, the folks on the, on the far right of said bell curve who are, gonna, who are gonna change the world and they're gonna be the next, uh, they're gonna create the next Amazon. Mm-hmm. Then there's folks at the far left end of the bell curve who, um, who might never launch whatsoever. Sure. How much of that is social? How much of it's financial? What, what, um, what advice do you have for parents, maybe, mm-hmm. who's, and I, I mean financially, 
for for parents of kids who just aren't launched they're not going no then that's something that scares the heck out of me with a little guy it's what kind of human being will he turn out to be but there's a lot of different planning that you can do with that whether it's um, helping them and trying to advance them with their knowledge and sometimes they just don't want to take that but on their own protection of setting up trust planning so that they won't have the uh, I'll use that the Billy Madison syndrome where you don't all of a sudden pass away and leave them with millions of dollars and the first thing to do is go and buy a Ferrari with it or become irresponsible so my own individual planning we have trust set up for the little guy that you know what in the event something happens to us at 18 he doesn't get surprised now go do whatever you want to do of course hopefully if something happens to us that you'll guide him I will. I will. Appreciate that. And vice versa, because my, my daughter also, we, we, we have set up trust for her um, because I don't want to destroy her upward mobility and her uh, confidence and her ability to, to create for herself. Right. I mean, I really think you can disenfranchise someone by, by dropping money in their lap. Um, you know, I, th- I think there's, there's an entirely enormous wave and this is talked about in the media a lot of a trillion dollars, which is going to be gener- you know, generationally passed over the next decade. Mm-hmm. It's a huge amount of money. It's giant. Um, I do think it'll be less than a trillion because I think we're going to blow two or two, 20 to 30 percent of that on health care, um, probably in the last six months of life. Um, but nonetheless, it's going to be a huge amount of money that goes to the next generation. And people have lived so long that when they leave money to the next generation, the folks inheriting the money could be 70. Right. Um, so let's talk generation skipping, because I don't know about mm-hmm. you, but um, my parents would tell you if they were sitting here that their kids are rotten and their grandchild's perfect. Uh, N- knowing their children, yeah. I would agree with that. <laughs> so I don't know if you've heard any of that yourself, um, but I suspect <laughs> your parents and your in-laws would rather do something for your son than for the two of you. It is an interesting dynamic. I remember when we brought my son home, and it was the day I realized that my parents stopped paying attention to me and, and with my grandparents. There was now a more important, important person in my life, in their lives. So at the idea of being able to skip one generation that they know is already there and already grown and doing the right things to help out the next, I think they love. So there's, there's reasons from a tax perspective, complicated uh, tax provisions uh, called generation skipping transfer taxes that you have to consider if you're going right. to leave a bunch of money and, and skip a generation. And mostly that's because uh, the government wants to make sure that every generation gets taxed. Mm-hmm. Um, because heaven forbid we should we should roll money <laughs> down to our grandchildren uh, without without a haircut uh, from a from a, a tax standpoint. But um, without getting into the the nuts and bolts of the of the technicalities, mm-hmm. um, what are some ways around that? What are some ways to create ongoing um, generational wealth, ideally without taxes? Uh, one of the best ways is to, actually through life insurance. And as as weird as that sounds. Because um, it sounds morose in its sense, but you can actually create perpetual wealth by having life insurance, even on your children, where they're building and protecting their insurability, but also building a cash value, um, which I haven't experienced myself personally, but I know that you have. It's a pretty powerful story, and one of the reasons why we did it on my son himself, because when we tell people that you put life insurance on your child, why? But from the standpoint of we're protecting his insurability later in life, and also it's creating something that may not be for his benefit, but also for my grandchildren later on down the line. Okay. Um, and then let's talk about 529s too. Because sure. I, the life insurance the life insurance piece is something folks don't think about. Right. I mean, if you want to make a gift to your grandchildren, yeah. one of the best things you can do is buy life insurance on your children. Right. And that, that sounds bizarre, but... 
Um, the grandparents often have the resources to do it. Mm-hmm. The parents often don't because they're paying tuition and they're doing all the other things they have to do, plus their own student loans in a lot of cases. Life's expensive. The, the, the grandparents a lot of times have the wherewithal, mm-hmm. and it's a way to make sure that you're supporting your grandchildren, not necessarily your children, and you're perpetuating wealth, and it's all done income tax-free. Yeah, exactly, and in the meantime, it's your money. Right, so that's that's a that's a great one. Now, the next one is is the college plans. Right. I, I think people are maybe misusing or misunderstanding the way some of the college savings plans work in terms mm-hmm. of perpetuating wealth. What, what? No, so you can change the beneficiary at least once a year, and you can put in, I think the number is $15,000 a year up to a five-year limit. So you're able to put money away. It can grow tax-deferred, and if pulled out for the right reasons, you pay no taxes on it whatsoever, and now they just change the tax law so you can pull it out for grades 1 through 12 and use it for that up to $10,000 a year. So it can be pulled out in such a way that it helps everyone. And on top of that, if the kid doesn't wind up going to school, well, you can change the beneficiary later. Or if you know what, you get bored, you can go back to school yourself. So I have 529s for my daughter, and I'm actually going to offset some of the incredible bloodletting that is fourth grade tuition starting this fall um, by using that 529, which I'm excited about. Um, and I do covet that PhD. If for no other reason, Yanni, then I want you to call me doctor. <laughs> <laughs> so that'll be great. It won't happen. All right. So we're, we're at the point in our show where it's real important to, to give folks a takeaway. Sure. Um, we call it extra credit, and that's because I have yet to meet anyone who enjoys homework or tests or any of that garbage. But everybody likes extra credit, so the way to get an A in this course, mm-hmm. Yanni, is to come up with one thing. One thing that our listeners can can grab a hold of today and say, all right, if I do this one thing, I'm that much closer to financial independence and to graduating into retirement instead of retreating. Sure. Um, My advice would be to start as early as possible. Remember, this is a marathon, not a sprint. And just like a marathon, the sooner you start training, the better off you're going to be. I think that's excellent advice. Um, let's take it one step further on that okay. marathon concept. I, 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 my marathon's a 5K, first of all. I like to run for 30 minutes and then have a banana and a beer at the end of it. <laughs> but maybe a granola bar. But, but for people who run marathons, one of the things that, that they say is you have to pace yourself. You don't want to break out in the first mile and into a dead sprint because, um, because you'll wind up running out of gas really soon. So is this a situation where you not only start early, but you also try and make it gradual? Yes, exactly. You don't want to rush into anything. There's there's steps to it. Again, everybody's unique. Everybody comes out of school with a different set of circumstances. And with that, it might be saying, you know what, the first couple of years, it's debt management. And then from there, I'm pretending that money is still going to debt management, but now it's going to retirement. And then eventually life gets more complicated. You have a kid, two, three. And you realize that life is more expensive. And now not only is it retirement, but it's also planning for college and then eventually taking care of your parents. So making sure you're taking those steps along the way and not rushing into anything. So, Yanni, your, um, your extra credit assignment is excellent. It's, it's start early and pace yourself and, and make financial independence a marathon. So Yanni can be reached on our website at www.bfgfa.com. Uh, we'll also put your personal email address in our show notes so that folks who want to reach out to you can. Uh, and I know they can find you on social media as well. So thanks again for being the guest today. Uh, and until next time, this is Eric Brotman, your host of Don't Retire, Graduate, and we'll talk to you soon. 
From this day forward, let us make each decision with our best interests in mind. Let us begin visualizing our dreams and reaching our goals. It's time to take the next steps in our life journey and build our futures. Today, I implore you, don't retire, graduate. Visit our website, don'tretiregraduate.com to download episodes and connect with us on social media. Securities offered through Kestra Investment Services, LLC. Kestra IS, member FINRA, SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Kestra Advisory Services, LLC. Kestra AS, an affiliate of Kestra IS. Kestra IS or Kestra AS are not affiliated with Brotman Financial or any other entity discussed. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.